0: If you have a Bible, please could you open it to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I'd encourage you to get one out in front of you. If you have one, if you don't have one, there's some spare church Bibles. You feel free to go grab one. It's helpful to track with the passage, having one in your hands. Um, I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 4. If you've been with us for any time at Grace London, you'll know that we've been um, taking a slow walk through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. There's a letter that he wrote while he was in a prison cell Imprisoned to a church that he had planted some years previously and for which he cared deeply. And as he writes, his normal pattern in almost all of his letters is to lay out a foundation of doctrine, the kind of fundamental truths and ideas that he wants his hearers or his readers to understand at the front part of his letters, and then to begin to spell out the practical implications of those doctrines. And Ephesians 1 to 3 are some of the richest, densest, most concentrated, uh, most stretching um, expressions of Christian belief. And so we spent a few months just working through almost line by line to try and understand and get our heads around and delve into the depths of The way that Paul articulates our faith, the gospel, what Christ has done for us, what he's done for you individually, how he's brought us together into the experience of being his people from diverse backgrounds and with hostility between one another, now knowing the experience of being God's family. And then there's a pivotal moment in this letter from chapter 4 onwards where we just begin to read and to, to unfold the letter where all of that truth is now pointed at us in terms of its implications and applications, how you are called to live it out. And I was saying to you last week, and I believe it with all my heart, that there has to be a connection, almost like your left and right brain are connected, but think differently. There has to be a connection between what you believe convictionally as a Christian, the doctrine that roots and grounds you in Christ, and the the way you work it out. That wherever those two things are disconnected, you experience a real disintegration of who you are as a person. You feel the tension deep in your gut. And I would say most of the frustrations and challenges that Christians experience are because of the lack of integration of those two things. But when your faith is matched with action so that what you believe is put into practice in very real, tangible ways, that's when you become an integrated or whole person. And the Holy Spirit enables you to do that. So these things belong together. But we have to pay as much attention to the outworking of our faith practically as we do to understanding it in the first place. And you can't have one without the other. They come together. So let's read these first six verses again of Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll begin to take this apart and understand the exhortation here. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. Here's the practical exhortation. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You've been saved, he's saying. You've been cleansed. You've been given the name of a believer. You've been made part of God's family. All those things are true of you. Now walk it out. Let it be expressed in the worthiness of your life that matches your doctrine. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then he brings us to a very sharp application. Perhaps his most important message in the entire letter. He says to work it out with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace... There is one body and one spirit, just as you're called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So where does he go when he's beginning to want to apply everything that he's been teaching about what it means to be a believer in Christ? Where does he go immediately as he applies this in the life of the church? And the answer is, he's speaking about the unity of gospel fellowship, of gospel community, what it means for you to belong to a church and your relationship to a church like this one. If you are a follower of Jesus, I don't want to assume that everyone here is, but if you are, some things will have become evident to you quite quickly in your Christian life that would have impressed upon you in the importance of belonging to a church. I want to remind you of these if you've forgotten them. One is the experience of knowing that you belong to a family. This becomes especially poignant for people who, whose, whose earthly families were either non-existent or fell short in profound ways. Belonging to the family of God is a profound and healing experience. And the most common word in the New Testament to describe a fellow believer is the word brother, which if we use more gender-inclusive language we say these days brother and sister, wouldn't we? But it essentially means the same thing, that we're siblings in Jesus. In fact, that dy- dy- dynamic of family in Christ's teaching is shown to take superiority or to take preeminence even over your biological family. Did you know that? In the teaching of Jesus, in, for example, in Mark chapter 3, he asked the question, who are my mother or brothers? when his actual biological family is outside calling for his attention, and he looks around the room at a gathering like this of all the people who are listening to his teaching, he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, brother, he is my family, he's saying. And he's saying the most important family on earth to belong to is the people of God, this eternal family. So you begin to realize that you have family. You'll then also begin to experience a deep affinity with other believers when Christ has taken his seat of authority and uh, rule in the center of your existence which in a sense is the definition of a Christian when Christ has taken that place of authority inside of you you can meet someone from a radically different background even maybe somebody from another nation who maybe you don't even share language with But if you have a shared affection for the same Lord, you can feel a deep sense of affinity with them. I've experienced this countless times. And an affinity that, in fact, is more powerful than the bond you may have with those you grew up with who don't follow Jesus. It's an extraordinary thing. But it makes sense given what he's saying here in Ephesians 4 when he says, you could paraphrase it, where he says there's one body, one spirit. You could say there is the same body, the same spirit, just as you're called to the same hope that belongs to your call, the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, the same God and Father of all. If we share all these most fundamental realities, then we belong together, don't we? So your family, you feel deep affinity, and more than that, very quickly on, in the beginning of your Christian journey, you suddenly realize you cannot go it alone. there are struggles that are involved with following Jesus, that he's not like the the, the icing or the the sprinkles that you put on a cake where you have a little bit of Jesus just to decorate your life. It's not like that at all, but rather that that it's a life-consuming call to become a follower of Jesus, and very quickly, the difficulty of that, the hardship, the challenge, the opposition becomes a very excruciating experience at times. In the letter to the Hebrews, there's a moment late on, he's trying to encourage them, and he says, he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's like, guys, you've got it easy. You haven't yet shed your blood, have you, in resisting sin, so things are okay with you. And there's a sense in which that, re- that resonates with all of us who've been following Jesus. Maybe you've not had to shed your blood as yet to remain faithful to Christ, but sometimes it's felt like a life and death battle. and That's why in that same letter he says a few just a couple of chapters earlier he says do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What I'm trying to help you to see friends is that you don't go long in this Christian walk in the walk of discipleship to Jesus before you recognize that to go alone is deadly and that therefore you need The fellowship of deep, real, honest, vulnerable, encouraging, uplifting, truth-centered, Christ-honoring gospel community. And without that, you won't survive. Now, all those things I take as a given. And there's a lot more I could say on that. And uh, to me, this is one of the most central things what drives me, what I'm passionate about. It's not just about you knowing Jesus. It's also about your, your belonging to the family of God. But one of the great frustrations that we face is that we, you cannot take this for granted. I can't take it for granted that, that all of us see this. Partly because not all churches embody or practice this fellowship, this gospel community. And that, I think, is a hangover of many distorted ways of doing church, particularly in the Western world, that have, that have really made this an individual experience, your spirituality rather than a communal one grounded in, in, in fellowship. And so you can go to churches across the spectrum of styles and, and be anonymous in them all. You can go to very traditional liturgical services and churches and not be known. Or you can go to very modern expressions of worship and not be known. One thing you cannot take for granted is that churches are passionate about building community. And yet we must be. And alongside that is the reality that not all Christians see the importance of this that you may have been following Jesus even for years and maintained a distance from church for reasons maybe you haven't even thought about or perhaps because of some hurt that you've experienced or some lack of trust. Whatever it is that's going on inside of you, not all of us believe or certainly follow up on a belief that gospel community is vital. And even if those two things aren't true, even if you're part of a church that's passionate about this, and even if you believe it with all of your soul, nevertheless, we still face this great problem, which is that it is difficult to do. If that were not true, Paul would not have written as he did to the Ephesian church. The New Testament is replete with charges and exhortations and commands that have to do with our life together, the experience of fellowship together. And the only reason why these things are there is because if we do not fight for this, then we will lose it. If we don't cherish it, if it's not precious to us, if we take it for granted, if we don't exert or extend ourselves strenuously in the pursuit of genuine gospel fellowship, then it it will be lost. Now why? Why? Why do Christians who share Christ, who often have amazing stories of the grace of God and taking you from what you were and now making you what you are, why, if we have this most incredible resource in the gospel, why is it that we find gospel fellowship and gospel community difficult at times? Why do we divide? And I want us to to wrestle with this, and we're going to take... Just one angle on this today. But listen, there are lots of reasons why Christians divide. Sometimes it's because of differences over doctrine or belief. And, you know, I understand that. I'm a conviction-led, belief-oriented person. I happen to think that differences matter. But very often, if we gather around Scripture and we have hearts that are soft to it, we'll find more agreement than we will disagreement. Almost all of the time. Sometimes it's doctrine. Sometimes it's style. And the culture of churches. You know that if you go to the various churches that are meeting today across London. You'll experience wildly different styles and ways of worshipping. And very often we fall out over these things. Churches themselves can experience division. Back in the middle of the last century. Most churches across this nation were um, had a familiar experience where you go in and you go through a particular particular order of service, and it wouldn't matter if you were in high church, low church. There was basically a similar thing in, that involved prayers and hymns and organs. Now, there was difference within that, but fundamentally, there was a rich heritage of centuries of ways of worshiping that was continuing on into, into, into the middle of the last century. And then the 1960s and 70s come along and things began to change. Christians discovered that there were other instruments beyond organs. They discovered guitars, for example. And these, these, uh, these um, instruments of the devil found their way into, into church worship services and were met with deep resistance by many because they felt like it was a betrayal or an abandonment of a heritage that was centuries old and surely was ordained by Christ himself, even though organs didn't exist in the first century. And so as guitars and other instruments came into worship services, very often churches experienced real divisions. And I'm just trying to illustrate for you how even just stylistic things can be a reason to fall out. Man, the 1980s, I was born in the 80s, and that was, that was an era to behold. And one of the great controversial transitions that took place in the 80s was abandoning the song or hymn books that filled all the chairs and then bringing in the overhead projector Most of you have never seen one of these, have you? Because they're they're pretty much obsolete. But it was a great big box with a giant light bulb in it that shone light through an acetate, a clear acetate. And you'd have a kid at the front sliding the thing up and down, trying to make sure that you were keeping in track with the words. And this was viewed as a compromise with the world by some. And so as these transitions and these changes and these cultural shifts came in, divisions crept in. And I'm trying to help you to see, look, we're very human, aren't we? There's doctrine differences, there's style differences, and all these things can divide. But underneath all of this, the most important explanatory factor for Christians failing to experience deep gospel fellowship Though we long for it, though we desire it, though we prize it, though we see its importance and necessity in our lives. The deepest reason for our failure to put it into practice is almost always to do with a deficit of personal godliness. It's the fact that we're not like Jesus. And unfortunately... Because we're called to live in this experience of community, close proximity with others who are as sinful as you means that in a short space of time you'll give and receive offense. And the only way to avoid that is to keep other believers at arm's length, at a distance. But that in itself is sinful. And so it becomes a matter not of when, not of if you will fall out with other Christians, but just only a matter of when. And I have spent all my life in church and churches that have been relatively healthy as churches go in terms of the the emphasis on passion and for community life. But I have far more stories than I wish to tell of the divisions and the hurts and the heartaches and the offenses And the reactions and the counter-reactions, our inability to be like Jesus in living this out. And this, my friends, is why Paul speaks as he does. Last week, I focused on some of the fundamental ideas around what unity is and why we must pursue it. But look again at the heart of what he's saying here is a moral exhortation or a series of moral exhortations. I want you to track with me and we're going to consider these in depth. He asks us or charges us to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. First of all, with all humility. Pride and superiority are deadly to any genuine friendship or relationship gospel community and are dangerous because they are so subtle. Pride is, I think, probably the most subtle of all sins. I think there are those who see it in themselves and perhaps even own it, but by and large, most of us have pride in our heart but fail to even see that it's there. Part of the problem is that it, it adopts different guises or disguises. It it, it cloaks itself in different forms. One of the, let me just give you a few examples. I think within the context of, of faith, you know, faith community like this, perhaps the most common form is moral pride. That thing that Jesus was so keen to, to expose and to kill. But moral pride is the sense inside that you are better than someone else. And certainly that afflicts us all at some points in our lives, I suspect. Then there's also cultural pride. You know, we have a church that's made up of many different cultures, and you have you have the South Africans over here with their brides and their rugby, just really happy with themselves. And you have the Southeast Asians over here with their amazing food and their, they love to hang out. And you have the Brits with their passive aggression and their resistance to any kind of confrontation. And we all have our different cultures. And then merging and molding those cultures together can be a challenge, can't it? Then you have intellectual superiority. We we are, we. I don't know if we really fully understand or recognize just how much this affects us, but we're all from our youngest age raised in cultures that, that esteem academic and intellectual attainment and also pitch you against your peers on that as a measure from the earliest age all through your formative years. Now, that's, that's a bizarre thing to do, but it's part of the world in which we live, and so it trains us to think of ourselves in those categories and to compare ourselves with others in that way and then to create strata, or you think about um, physical pride, that some of you are more beautiful than others. And you know it. And some of you, you know, like myself, are very athletic. And you you feel something of your physical superiority in that regard. Or some of you have social pride. Social pride is when you you feel that. You you particularly have a a grace in social environments to move in and out of um, an environment and make friends and make people laugh and to be easygoing and all that. And social pride can also cause the distancing from those who you think, well, they're just not that, they're not cool or they're not, they just I just don't get along with them or they're a bit weird or they're a bit eccentric or whatever else it is. And so all of these things, and there are many more that we could list, but it seems to me that as humans, one of the most basic fundamental truths about us is that we are constantly rating ourselves against others and finding reasons to feel great about ourselves. And you may not have seen it, but it's there. It's in your heart. It's in my heart. And then it gets even more subtle than that still because it's not only the expression of pride in terms of superiority, but then it's inversion, inferiority that also leads to a kind of inverted pride. You see this in moral sense, that if you are somebody who recognizes your deep failures, you distance yourselves from those who you consider too holy or holier than thou. You know, too earnest in the pursuit of God. And you think, well, I'd rather just stay away from them. Or if you feel that you are culturally inferior in some way because you weren't raised in the right background or with the right family or the right way of speaking, you judge those who were and think, well, they have all these privileges that I don't have. And so you hold them at arm's length as well. Or if you feel intellectually inferior, you may think, well, I went to the University of Hard Knocks, or the University of Life, and, you know, they can't teach me anything, and I, you know, look at them with their books and whatever else, So I'm going to stay away from them. Or if you feel physically inferior, you feel envy against others and judge them for um, their beauty or their physical prowess or whatever it is, or if you feel socially awkward. You, you, you judge everyone else who's in the in-crowd, even if the in-crowd doesn't exist, you imagine that it exists and you're not in it. And these kinds of complexities in the way that we think and act and feel make community challenging, to say the least. And all of it is interlaced with pride and the need of the human heart to find distinction. And superiority and to, to, to find some way of elevating yourself above others. How can we be free of this, given that we are such a mess? And friends, the answer it seems to me, is Jesus. The one thing that you and I could all agree on is that by every measure he is better. That, whatever way you seek to distinguish yourself from others as better, Christ is better than you. That He's purer, that He's stronger, that He's gentler, that He has more dignity, that He has more authority. Christ is better in every single way. And it seems to me that part of the experience of maturing in the Christian life is the deeper, more honest recognition of our relative worthlessness in comparison with the inestimable worth of the Savior we love. And so the, the more you mature, the humbler you get. And not only do we look at him in worship and esteem him in this way and experience the humbling effect of that, we also note, don't we, The way in which Christ humiliated himself for our sakes. I think of these extraordinary verses in Philippians 2. Where Paul instructs us to have the mind of Christ. It says of Jesus that though he was in the form of God, and he's speaking of Christ before he became man, Christ at the Father's right hand through all eternity past. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to gripped onto or held onto, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, speaking there of his incarnation, taking on human flesh in order to serve us. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As though becoming man were not enough. Jesus allowed himself to be stretched out upon a cross naked with a lacerated body, shamed, publicly humiliated, bearing the sin of the world upon his shoulders for your sake and for mine. And this is why pride has no place within gospel community because the Savior that we worship is humble. Walk worthily, he says, with all humility. Then he adds, and gentleness. This word gentleness It can also, and is often translated with the word meekness. Now, I don't know how you react to that word meek or meekness. I think that for most of us it's regarded as a negative quality because we tend to think of meekness as a despicable type of weakness, an inability to stand up for yourself and therefore to become something of a doormat and a victim To the whims of others. I think in our day and age, meekness is is generally regarded as an inadequacy within a person. Now, what you're called to do is stand up for yourself, love yourself, declare your truth, and all this kind of nonsense, right? What is meekness? Meekness is not weakness, meekness is rather strength and power that is regulated and controlled for the good of others. You can picture, you know, if you've seen those Attenborough documentaries and you see the might of a male lion in the pride of lions and you'll see the cubs rolling around and learning to fight. And often they'll try and pick a scrap with the big dad and bite him or gnaw him or climb all over him. And meekness is his... Deliberate willingness not to crush them at that moment. That's meekness. It's strength that's gentle and under control. And power that is is applied in a regulated way. Now, typically or very often in the ancient world, this word, the Greek word that underlies this, was used in context of justice. To speak about the application of justice in a gentle way a merciful way towards the guilty party. So there's an example of this in 1 Corinthians when, you know, that church is a complete mess. There was incest. There were people sleeping with prostitutes. There was all the infighting and the lawsuits within the church community. And these things are going on. And Paul writes to them in somewhat of an anguished state of heart as he seeks to bring them back to Christ and to the gospel. And he just poses this question to them. He says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? you know, to give you a a beating in the name of Jesus or with love in a spirit of gentleness or meekness. So though I am in the right here and I can adopt a position of of righteousness, shall I come to you to give you a punishment or shall I come to you with meekness to gently apply the gospel and correction to you? The answer, of course, you know, is they would want to come in gentleness. And listen, Why is this so vital for community? And I'll tell you why. It's because people will wrong you and hurt you the more time you spend with others. The more time you are in the context of a church as a family, you will experience the offenses and the, and, and the, the hurts from others that sometimes will cut you deep, the disappointments also. And whenever you are wronged, you have a form of power. You have the power of being in the right, the power of righteousness, the power of justice. Meekness, therefore, is restraint in how you deal with the wrongs of others committed against you. That though you could lash out, you could... You could be angry, you could hurt others, and you could react out of emotion. Meekness is the willingness to exercise restraint and gentleness towards others, even when they hurt you. And friends, isn't this exactly how Christ has dealt with you and me? There's a beautiful scene, a sort of subtle scene, really, towards the end of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, in which... The little scallywag Edmund, the second brother, uh, the third in the, in, the, in the run of siblings, betrays his siblings. He's treacherous, and he, he turns over to the white witch, betraying his siblings and going against Aslan, who represents Christ. All for a tray of Turkish delight, of all things. Just uh, C.S. Lewis just mocking our tendency to abandon everything that we love and care about for momentary pleasures. Isn't that the most human thing? It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Much later in the story, as Edmund is rescued from the white witch and brought back to his siblings, he has a moment of restoration. And listen to the restraint with which C.S. Lewis describes this. He says As soon as they had breakfasted, they all went out, and there they saw Aslan and Edmund walking together in the dewy grass, apart from the rest of the court. There's no need to tell you, and no one ever heard what Aslan was saying, but it was conversation which Edmund never forgot. And as the others drew nearer, Aslan turned to meet them, bringing Edmund with him. Here is your brother, he said, and there is no need to talk to him about what is past. Now I think what C.S. Lewis is doing there, and the reason why he doesn't even allow us as readers to overhear the conversation between Aslan and Edmund, is because he does not want to compound the shame of Edmund's wrong in that moment. Friends, it seems to me that that is exactly how Jesus has treated me and how he's treated you. There's not a person among us who doesn't have dark and malicious and impure desires and motives that Christ alone has known about but that he has dealt with in the secrecy and the privacy of his grace and of his love towards you without opening you up to public shame. Isn't Jesus like Aslan in his gentleness and tenderness towards each one of us? And that then is how we must treat each other. With all humility and gentleness, then he adds this, with patience. Now, this to me throws up one of the most unique challenges that is brought about through community, which is that it is possible to avoid all frustration with others by simply avoiding them altogether. There's a, an African proverb that begins in this way and says, If you want to go fast, go alone. And there's truth in that, isn't there? If you don't want to be encumbered by all the inconveniences and the frustrations and the hurt and the the delays of dealing with other people, the tediousness of other people, just don't be with other people. You know, simple. But eventually, of course, you crash out because you're not designed to be alone. So the other half of that proverb, you know, it says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And this is where the necessity of patience comes into the experience of working out fellowship with others. You know, this is true on a natural level. You ever walked alongside someone who either walks faster or more slowly than you? It's a frustrating experience, isn't it? (laughs) My parents were like this all through my childhood. I remember it vividly. My mom marches wherever she's going. She's always moving quickly. Even now, she's nearly 70, she's faster than me. My dad, on the other hand, dawdled head elsewhere. You can guess which one of them I took after. And therefore, I, my, my abiding memory was of Mum 20 meters ahead of us, wherever we went to walk. Dad, just happily going along in the rear, sort of like an invisible cord, dragging him along unwillingly. <laughs> and of course, this is what you experience. that Walking with others is a frustrating experience because one of you wants to go fast, another wants to go slow, and there's impatience in the mix, isn't there? And it's true in gospel fellowship. You'll find that trying to walk in step with others, maintaining healthy relationships, dealing with frictions, reconciling when hurts are caused will test your patience time and time again. It is tedious to have to go through reconciliation with someone when it's a difficult process. I will tell you Honestly, that as a pastor, I think the virtue that is most tested, I think I can speak for the, all the elders at the church on this, the virtue that is most tested is the virtue of patience. Because as much as I can look around and see eagerness and passion and zeal and love for Christ among some, there are many for whom this, doesn't, this just doesn't seem to be a resonance where sermons just bounce off like water off a duck's back and there doesn't seem to be a willingness to walk with and keep in step with the things of the Spirit. And so that creates tension and creaking within, within a community, doesn't it? Does Some want to go fast and some want to go slow. But remember, friends, the Lord Jesus Christ has been patient towards us. This chastises us, doesn't it? Second Peter chapter 3 says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I thank God that he has been patient towards me because I can tell you that there are sins in my life that have been there for as long as I can remember ways of thinking and acting and desiring. The only reason I can live and breathe before you today is because of the patience of my Father, the patience of Christ. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, he says. Then he adds this, bearing with one another in love. Now this this word bearing with, it can be translated enduring or putting up with one another. And again, this seems to me to assume that you are going to be frustrated or offended with others when you live in gospel community. And you can avoid that through one of two ways. One is to maintain distance at all times, to live in a perpetual state of social distance from others so that they can never really cause you hurt or harm. And the other is to develop a touchiness and a sensitivity that if people let you down or hurt you or trigger you or offend you, you back off very quickly to protect yourself. And both of these reactions fail in this. They fail because they fail to love others as Christ has loved you. Bearing with one another, Paul says, in love. A love, by definition, is something that gives and gives and gives again. What is real love? This agape love, as distinct from brotherly love and friendship love and erotic love, the agape love that is at the heart of gospel community, is a willingness to keep moving towards others, even absorbing their offenses as you Draw closer to them. In 1 Peter, there's a verse that captures this, distills it down, a verse worth memorizing and storing in your heart. Where he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. What I think he's speaking of there is the fact that when you love another, you expose yourself to the risk of being hurt. And anyone that you love truly and sincerely at some point will hurt you. There is no question about that. And you them. The only problem is how will you work through the pain? Sometimes it's necessary to bring it to light, to engage in a confrontation, challenge so that apologies can be given and received that actually isn't always necessary sometimes you can just bury the thing as though it never happened now you can't do that if it still causes a problem for you if it means that you cannot fellowship with another you can't bury it because you haven't really buried it it's there in between you that's for you to judge but love will deal with the hurt one way or another, either by bringing it into the light so that reconciliation can be experienced between you, or by burying the thing out of sight. Love covers a multitude of sins. You forget about it. It's as though it never happened. And this, to me, is what Paul's saying here when he says enduring and bearing with one another in love. There's a beautiful scene in the film Goodwill Hunting Matt Damon plays Will, Will Hunting, this precocious and gifted genius, but troubled, deeply troubled because of his childhood in the care system and being beaten by foster parents. And he's violent and prone to acting out criminally and the, the hurt and pains that he's experienced. It's a truism, isn't it, that, though, that hurting people hurt people. And in the course of the film, he is meeting with an older man called Sean, played by Robin Williams. And Sean is a psychologist who's been through his own hurts in life, but who has a tenderness towards will, but also a firmness. And will, in the way that's so recognizable when you're acting out of pain, tests Sean, the psychologist, tests him, his loyalty, his his commitment, by offending him unnecessarily. And you see these tense moments between them when Will is aggravating Sean for no other reason than just the kick of aggravating him. And all of this comes to a kind of breaking moment in a scene in which they're both in Sean's office. And Sean holds up Will's file in which he has the record of this younger lad's life and experiences and the notes he's been taking he holds it up and says, Will, it's not your fault. And at first he kind of shrugs it off and says, I know it's not my fault. He says, Will, it's not your fault. He says, I know it's not my fault. And he moves closer to him. He closes the gap and says, it's not your fault. And Will begins swearing back at him with obscenity and frustration and He's saying, it's not your fault. And he moves closer and closer, closes the gap between them until he's right in his face and says, it's not your fault, at which point Will breaks, throws himself onto shore in an embrace and bursts into floods of tears. And it seems to me that that is a beautiful depiction of the way Christ has loved you. It's not that he says to you, it's not your fault, but he says rather, I have taken your fault upon me. And he moves into your most intimate space. He gets in your face with unrelenting love. And embraces you until you break. And heals you in his affection and love for you. So that all the offenses that you racked up against him, it's as though they never happened. Because he loves you with a clean Sight, he says, you're mine, and your sin is buried. And friend, it seems to me that true love for another human and real and authentic gospel community can only be by the same gospel power that we have first received when Jesus has embraced us as you move towards others and move past their offenses, their defenses. And into that most intimate place of loving and being loved. Bearing with one another in love. The final thing he says here is this. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Eager. It seems to me that this final exhortation really poses a direct question to every one of you. That asks you the question, do you want this? Do you desire it? Are you devoted to it? Do your actions and your posture reveal a heart that wants to love others in the way that Christ has loved you? I think that many Christians... Unfortunately, experience something of a stunted growth at some point in their maturing. So, granted, when you first become a Christian, you're like a newborn baby. You're entirely dependent upon others. And that dependence can last for seasons, it can last for a while in your life. There's very little you can give back because all you do is receive. But at some point, you grow beyond that and then you become something more mature. And some people go through a teenage phase. Think of what the, the kind of archetypal teenager is, at least in the modern Western world. A teenager is, is, is essentially someone who wants to receive without giving back, who loves the comforts of a warm roof, meals prepared, parents who give them lifts here and there, a, a, d- a weekly allowance, and ideally fees paid to go to university or whatever else they're doing, but with no expectation of giving in return, not even necessarily civility or cordiality or friendship or affection. It's all receive, 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 and it's never give. And it seems to me that too many followers of Christ are locked into a stage of maturity that rather resembles that. It's not that you have the petulance or the sullenness of a teenager necessarily, but maybe you always think of your faith as something interior, about you, about something you receive, and never about service and love and the extension of yourself towards others in a way that heals them as you become an agent of Christ. And I want to tell you as lovingly as I can, to, brother, sister, Christ wants more for you, He's given you gifts. He's given you abilities. He's made you in his image, and he wants to use you to bring his love and healing to others in the context of gospel community. He's designed you for that purpose. And so the question comes are you eager? Do we see in you an enthusiastic and committed participation? in the lives of others within the context of gospel community? Are you a peacemaker so that when you see divisions creaking in the body where you see people hurting, you you seek to bring them back together by the grace of God? Does your prayer life reflect an affection for the bride of Christ, a longing to see her made whole and beautiful and healed and made perfect so that you pray for the church, the wider church and your church? Are you a welcomer? So that, you know, it doesn't matter whether you are part of a team or not on a Sunday. Your intention is to make sure that others find a home within the context of the family because that's your responsibility before Christ. Friends, are you eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Let me close with a final thought as I wrap this up. Everything that Paul has been urging upon us here are characteristics first and foremost of Jesus. He is the humble one who humbled himself for you. He is the meek one who treated you gently in your sin. He is the one who has extended patience with you. He is the one who has been bearing with you in love because of affection for you. And he is the one who is eager above all to maintain the unity of the Spirit because he created the unity of the Spirit by his death upon the cross to heal our divisions and to bring us together into God's family. All of these things are true first and foremost of Jesus himself. Hold that thought there. Alongside that is a second truth, that these virtues can only be expressed in the context of gospel community. You can only express humility in relationship to others. You can only be gentle in relationship to others, patient, bearing with them with them in love, eager to maintain unity with others. And so if you put those two truths together, all of them are characteristic of Christ, and they can only be achieved and developed in your soul within the context of community, then it means that you can only become more like Jesus as you devote yourself to his people. Church, the gospel community that Christ formed is the anvil, friends, for forming your soul. It's not the only one, but it is one of the most significant ones. An anvil is that great block of iron. That would sit at the center of a blacksmith's workshop that as he heats a piece of metal to form a, a plow or a, or a sword or an axe or whatever he's, he's forming or a horseshoe, he would then place it red hot on top of the anvil and strike it with his hammer against that solid object so as to bring about the formation and transformation that he desires. And it seems to me that even if you're fighting against it, even if you resist it, even if you're frustrated or hurt or resentful, whatever it is that you feel about church and the gospel fellowship that you've experienced, either here or elsewhere, church is the anvil against which Christ wants to shape you more, to be more like him. He wants to form you, friends. Or to put it another way, church is the context of the pressure and the heat that brings the deep chemical transformation that turns carbon into diamonds so that as you experience the pressures and the challenges and the frustrations of walking with others, Christ is forming his likeness in you. And you cannot do that when you're in isolation. It's only in the context of the fellowship. Brother, sister, devote yourself to this.